0: Hi and welcome to the Andy Gorman Golf One Putt podcast and uh, we're here in the studio because we're about to get started with some uh, recording, filming. Uh, I'm here with Gareth uh, from Mediate. Um, hi Gareth, welcome. Hi Andy, how are you? You right. Yeah, good. I'm looking forward to getting us uh, revisit, remastering the Putting Myths um, video series. So that's going to uh, consume the... Most of the afternoon, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, not too much, we'll go get you home at some point. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting that done. And uh, we've got a fantastic week's worth of golf to talk about. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was your take from the weekend's golf? So <laughs> <laughs> I'm very late.
1: I was very that I
0: stopped up and watched it for my uh, listeners' uh, benefit as much as obviously my own. Um, I did have a little snooze in the afternoon, partly because I wasn't very well but I was quite well energised by the time the golf was getting going, um, I, I don't think I missed the shot. Um, slipped in and out and got an extra coffee feed um, on the breaks, but I thought the golf was fantastic. Um, I think we got to start really in congratulating Andy mm, Sullivan for yeah. his win uh, at... Hanbury Manor. Hanbury Manor, I mean that course looked fantastic. It was in superb condition mm. and uh, you know no question, Sully was Streets ahead of everybody else. I mean, that's, what Was uh, the winning score
1: twenty three hundred? Was it?
0: I uh, can't recall. Cool. I was actually out. I know he won it by a handful of shots, mm-hmm. and, you know, quite quite easily. Really, I don't think he was um, stressing out by uh, by his win by any means. So, no, not um, at all. Yeah, yeah, it's great, great to see you back in the winner's circle. I think he's uh, a, a deserved. Um, so he's a good player. He is a good player. He is a good player. I think a few years. I wouldn't say he's been in. You know sort of in the doldrums really, but you know, not quite reaching his potential. Enough. Swing
1: changes and a few different coaches, different approaches. you think he's gone to. Um, I'm
0: I'm not a hundred percent, you know, with with what he's been doing. I mean, I, I, look, and I can't tell you a hundred percent about the data either. But um, it would appear that he's using a slightly longer putter. He's not the only player, of course, mm-hmm. using a slightly longer putter in recent times. I would say that he's done been doing that for a little while though. Um, not just the week of the first major of the year, uh, albeit a very strange first major of the year, of course, because mm. of those strange times. But, um, yeah, you know, when Sully first came out on tour, he had a putter that was you know, very short. He's not the tallest fellow in the world, um, and I don't have to ask him to admit that. He, <laughs> his st- statistics do tell us that. But, um, you know, he's using a putter that's longer in, I mean, I'd to say, probably over the last 18 months or so his Putting looks very solid, um, his whole game looks very solid. He's got a very, very solid ball flight off the tee. And you know, if you keep the ball in play on a course like that, mm. you can dial your irons in on a particularly given week. And you just happen to be putting well, well, you know, courses like Hanby Manor are there for the taking. There's some ridiculously low scores. So watching it Saturday afternoon, and I was saying when they got out on the course, I think there were four or five holes into the course, maybe half a dozen, but if you wasn't three under par, you'd gone backwards. Mm. You know, you're one under par after six holes, you've gone backwards a long way. Yeah. I think one of the players, I think it might have been Richard Bland, was one under uh, after five or six holes and had gone back five places, uh, sorry, 15 places. Wow so you know, it just shows you you know the standard of play on the course but if the course is there to be had and look i think golf tournaments you know we don't need to see them all like us opens do we no. lots of birdies, eagles being had by players i think it's great it, look uh, it's great when you're getting a chance to watch it first hand when you're getting to watch it on television you know it's the only way we can view it it's great television mm. you know i mean it's just uh, it creates a great atmosphere when you're seeing eagles and birdies.
1: What's your thought on that That kind of premise? Because you look across the pond at the usPGj and I don't know if it's like a kind like of US setup, set cool setup, but it played very difficult. Now it was notorious, it plays difficult US Open, US PGA.
0: Yeah. At times for me as a viewer, it just wasn't that exciting. Got exciting yesterday. I couldn't I literally couldn't not watch it. Um, you know, it was quite captivating to be fair. I think possibly because at the start of the day we had three Brits giving it a real good mm. go, you know, I had a, a fighting chance because Paul Casey finishing second with Dustin Johnson, you know he and, and I would I was making the call, I thought eleven under par would get the job done. Mm. Um the fact that obviously Ocawa just you know with one shot of genius but to be fair you know you knock it around that golf course in 64 I think the last day he deserved to win it um no drop shots he didn't do anything wrong um very very solid you know it shows you though that you know he shot half of his score really you know pretty much in in one round Mm. on the last day uh, well deserved victory, no question, very again, very solid off the tee. We saw that in the first round of events at Muirfield village. It, yeah. um, his only weakness appeared to be on the greens, and my word, he had no weakness on the it greens this fair. week, so um, you know, yeah i mean it 's just just exceptional, really. Um, it, I, I think when you 're looking at a major championship, the difference between a tournament, even a big level tournament. Like a Nicholas um, memorial event, or, or, or you know, any of the the sort of bigger field events, um, you know, toughening the course up and, you know, making tricking the greens up to to want a better, you know, taking them up to thirteen, fourteen on the stint, he, he's going to make it um, a different challenge. I think when it comes to major championships, the better players need to be the players that step up to the plate. Yeah. You know. Um, I thought it was fantastic, but you know there was um, apart from Brooks Kepka, I think they, there was some kind of crazy stat about the fact that the top ten players um hadn't got three hadn't got as many wins as Brooks Kepka had got in majors combined, so um all well, the players in the top ten, and I think there was about fifteen or sixteen players in the top ten, mm. so Kepka had got four, and I think there was three other major championship wins amongst the other. 15 or so players, so it was odds on that it was going to be a player that had um, not won before. Um, but the PGA Championship, you know, I think is, you know, we, we've not had the privilege of being able to watch PGA Championship, of course, over the last mm. few years because television rights for us to be able to see it this year, I think was fantastic. And it wasn't a tournament that disappointed one well, of the few players that, you know, would like to have seen there mixing it at the top? They weren't there, but you know what? The players that were at the top i thought tony finos stood that really well um obviously Harrell with his win paul casey just exceptional you know um he's going to have some beliefs going forward he's going mm-hmm. to go into the us open yeah. he's going to go into the masters believing that there's a win in a major still in his grasp and that's his best finish in a major mm-hmm. and uh, as he said i think about half a dozen times in his interview he was really happy. So, you know, and he should be. I think, you know, he can hold his head up. Um, slightly out of character chip shot at the one, you know, I think, was it the 13th or 14th, Where he dropped a shot, and it was like, hmm, okay, a little peculiar. Apart from that, he'd still come at one short, but of course, then he would have put a different pressure under Marikawa, but what an incredible eagle at 16. I thought that was just spectacular. And I applaud the USPGA um, for taking the, you know, the, the drivable par-4 mm-hmm. approach, you know, into one of the last few holes. It, it was pivotal. For it. Yeah, good. Absolutely, yeah. I think it was great. I mean, it, you know, Dustin Johnson, did he? I think he chipped in for a birdie. Mm. Um, so he was at the position off the tee, chipped it outside, west holder hold a shot. It, you know, it, it wasn't pivotal in the end because there was a two-shot victory but an eagle on there. Set him, set him apart from the field. So, yeah, you know, it was really, really good.
1: Um, when well, we were talking before about the kind of core cool setup and things, something that kind of stood out massively, I and mean, we've discussed, is the kind of approach playing to the greens. Yeah. And from that kind of 100 yards and in again, if you've had to chip out or thrash out with a, a deep lie, mm. you just put so much more pressure from your 100 yard in shot. And as you've said, if they then trick the greens and the pin positions are tough, who stood out for you? Who did it well? Who were you a little bit disappointed with?
0: Um, wow. I mean, who stood out? I don't think anybody really stood out. And I think, um, look, there's there's always a handful of shots, but, you know, one thing that I did notice, and I think it caught the players out as well, is when they were gauging out, gouging out, Mm -hmm. their gauging of where they wanted to play their next shot from caught them out. So it, rather than saying who stood out, it was about more to the fact that, you know, when they got within 40, 50, 60 yards, and they were maybe trying to get within the 90 to 220, mm-hmm. which would give them a full shot or fuller shot, that's when they're disappointed, you know, and I, I would just sweep across the whole of the field. I think the whole of the field... Um, generally, are not as strong from forty to sixty or forty to seventy-five as they are from eighty to one hundred and twenty. I think, and that's, um, and and you know, I would say the same thing in my own game that you know, I would rather be going in from seventy-five yards with a three-quarter, um, fifty-four, you know, to you know, to, to a shot from about fifty yards. Mm-hmm. Which would be a half swing with a fifty-four, and you know, three-quarter swing has more momentum, so it's easier to control the lag or the delivery of the club, the loft and shafting. Easier to launch, you know, sub thirty, you know, in terms of degrees of launch angle, so that you control the spin, you know, and you get the one hop stop. What I did notice that some of the players were playing shots out of the rough, and it was stopping. And, of course, if they're landing it in the false front areas of the green, it would then back off to the front of the green, and, you know, others then, obviously, you expect it to release. You just get slightly the wrong side of the slope or, you know, just catch it slightly heavy and, you know, you don't get the grip on it, you know, and travel the distance, but then just releases to the back of the green, of course, it the pins at the front, you know. So the the penalty of being in the rough um, at this particular USPGA was... Significant, and I think that then the ability to be able to play shots, control shots from the fairway probably was worth two to three shots around. I don't know what the strokes gained numbers are on that, if they're even available, but you know, ultimately, certainly, if you are playing from the short stuff, and if you are playing from the short stuff, you are much more able to control the spin, and if you can control the spin. By delivering the optimum angle of attack, bounce angle on the club, you know, the the launch angle is controllable. The spin axis um, is controllable. You're you're hitting your launch windows. Um, you know you are going to be able to control what happens to the golf ball when it hits the ground. So you, you know you you have the premium on accuracy when you've got your wedges in hand. It is, probably greater, I would say by about thirty percent greater need to be in the fairway with those wedge shots. Um I think if you're I think you become more general when you're hitting maybe a six or five or four iron out of the rough and obviously some lies would it take you can't hit four and five irons, you know, and you might be able to run the ball in, but it's what was what I did notice was if you were landing the ball ten yards short of the green, um the ball stuck and didn't get to the green. And if you were landing the ball a yard on the green, it rolled out to the back. Mm-hmm. And you know, so the premium again, you know, starting, you know, stroke playing labors on how much how important it is from tee to green and from 180, 200 yards in. But ultimately, if you're in the short stuff, you have control, and you know, you have to look at that as a premium wherever you go.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But controlling the flight on wedge shots, when everything that we talk about, everything that our conversations are leading now with manufacturers, um, you know, to optimising the strike, to determine that the smash factor is as close to that one-to-one factor, 1.0. You know, you have control. You've got to strike the ball out of the optimum place on the club to do that and equipment doesn't afford us to do that you know then ultimately you know you've got to play from the short stuff so obviously it comes down to you know if you're playing out the long stuff and your equipment is forgiving well that's great but you know most of the players are listening and most of the players that are playing in tour events are not playing with that equipment you know that that equipment is, is new on the market as we know and you know we will Keep the brand to ourselves for the time being, just to tease everybody. Mm-hmm. But um, you know the conversations that we have to now quite protracted in terms of watch this space. You know as to what we can actually do to deliver. You know that the optimum product to produce the most efficient miss hits, because not every shot you're going to hit. You know even as a tour player, let alone as a you know recreational golfer, and that's. Don't be offended if as a recreational golfer you you know, you're offended by the fact that you're going to miss it a wedge, you know, you will miss it a wedge because wedges are designed for good players who can't hit it all the time perfectly either. They hit it slightly high on the club. We're not talking about toe and heel contacts here, we're talking about high up on the face. So when you're in the rough, you you can't predict the angle of attack into the back of the ball is going to strike the ball as purely as you can when it's sitting on a nice tight fairway. So you know, those characteristics that, you know, affect the flight of the golf ball, the carry of the golf ball, more, more importantly, you know, are really important. And, you know, folk are not, and don't have that equipment available to them. Certainly not here in the UK, and, you know, it's relatively new across the world, as mm. we know, um, you know, we're talking about a new product. How, um, over your
1: time, yeah. your instruction, how have wedge flights changed? Because I know yeah. the craze at the moment, or it's something that the, the kind of discovery is that a kind of real flighted wedge. What are we looking? Kind of we talked about it before. Would it be 30 degrees?
0: Yeah, sub thirty launch. Um, even with a club that maybe is fifty eight or sixty degrees aloft, um, players are very able to launch under thirty degrees. And when they do that, you know they're typically striking the golf ball with you know eight to ten degrees of down um, with sort 10 to 12 degrees of, of shaft lean. So they're very much got their lead arm and club in a straight line at the point of impact and very much turning their chest over the golf ball. Um, ball, ball relatively central in the stance, which gives that little bit of shaft lean. Um, but ultimately it's the turn through that delivers the, the optimum position you know, angle of attack and, and loft and uh, shaft lean and compression on the shot, you know, it's the thing that I notice most amongst the better players, the better wedge players. Um, you know, that the sound is a is a very different sound from those that, that don't strike it well um or as well. And don't don't get me wrong, look I'm not trying to say that the best players in in the world or the best players in the European tour you know are poor hitting wedge shots you know there are there's a handful of them that are not great by any means and you know but they are just a handful and their game you know elevates in the other areas that you you are not going to be around on the european tour for very long or any tour for very long if you are poor uh, with your wedges you know in terms of approach shots but um you know when it comes to it you know flighted shots controlling the spin you know Fifteen years ago, we we struggled to control spin. The box groove element, the sharp edge grooves, were great at gauging the gauging the golf ball out of the rough, and you could stop the ball on a dime. I mean, you know, Padre Harrington was playing out of knee high rough in a, I want to say a PGA. It may well have mm-hmm. been a PGA, but certainly I remember him playing, um, I want to say a WGC event. And he played a shot at the back end of the, uh, of the fourth round. The rough had obviously grown for the whole week. The crowd hadn't been anywhere near it. It looked like it was knee high. He lost his shoes. You know, It looked like he lost the bottom of his leg as well in his grass. And this ball came out. Not only did he get it out, I'm going to say over water, over bunker, it you know, certainly was over a bunker to an elevated green. ball stopped and backed up. I mean, the best thing that that the governing bodies did then was to take the grooves you know, and and return them towards a V formation. I don't think they went far enough on it. That would be my first, um, you know, sort of statement on that. But, you you know, to back a ball up out of cabbage, you know, I mean, it's just like ridiculous. Mm -hmm. you, You know, you're lucky to get the club on the back of the ball without turning the thing over. But, you know, his strength and his quality of strike, but more importantly then, the grooves did what they did to literally Clear out all the grass between the ball and the club, and the ball stick and spin back. I mean, he knocked it to about a foot and a half, and knocked the putting in, and made recovery. I can't remember whether he made birdie or par, but he, you know, he was up and down, and he was out of it. He was out of out of position, nowhere being able to play. Probably couldn't play it now because the equipment would certainly have meant he'd have to play a different type of shot. Um, but ultimately, you know, we, we had to dial that back. But again, you couldn't control spin at that point in time, and you know that mean, meant that the golf ball was backing up, you know, and you know we've seen it with certain golf balls. You know, I were, grew up in and played in the era of the Tour Edition ball coming out from Spaulding, you know, where Spaulding had notoriously produced a hard cover, hard center ball, Top Flight XL. And, classic yeah. balls classic <laughs> ball i mean you know it was absolutely nothing like the pinnacle which just went forward i mean you could actually get some control on the on the top flight xl and there'll be people going like no you couldn't well, if you struck it well enough you could and you know but it was typically going to release it wasn't going to back up mm. but then all of a sudden tour edition came out with their zinfane cover you know and this thing just backed up all over mm. the place of course we Notorious those of us that were around remember Greg Norman spinning golf balls off the greens and into the rough and taking double bogeys at the last hole to fail to win another major championship. And you know, I remember listening to Peter Alice talking about, you know, players, you know, not being able to legislate for backspin. Well, you can, but you've got to hit it with a a loft and a flight that does that. And, you know, you the hole he was talking about was the ninth at Augusta, which we know notoriously slopes severely from back to front. And, you know, golf balls spinning off the green. Oh, you can't legislate for that. Mr. Ellis, with all due respect, yes, you can. These are the best players in the world and can flight the golf ball, even with the box grooves that we had back then and the flight. with the covers on the golf ball that could generate ridiculous amounts of spin. We can, we can control the flight now because it's easier with the golf ball and the shaft technology and, you know, the grooves. But you can, because you control it by loft and speed. You know, now, good players know this. So maybe the players that were, you know, playing these shots, that were spinning the golf ball off the green, the Mickelsons and the Greg Normans, and, and they're like, I don't recall Nick Faldo doing it. You know, I'm not saying he never did it, but I don't recall Nick doing it. And the reason why is because he controlled his ball flight. There was a guy who could control the flight of the golf ball, you know, in the 80s and 90s with box groove clubs, you know, which notoriously spun more, but he could control the flight as well as anybody could. And I think prior to Nick, maybe even Nicholas didn't control the flight as well as Nick Fowler did. But, you know, what you could say is that Nicholas could control the flight with long irons, definitely, because he could get the ball to stop because of the towering flight that he hit. Now, all of a sudden, we're back into, all well, what happens with a the wedge then? Well, he had this towering flight, which would land and stop. It would not necessarily back up. Of course, he was playing golf in his prime with V grooves and not box grooves that we got in the 80s. And, you know, notoriously, you know, Pingai too, you know, having to round the edges of their grooves off because they were you know, so sharp and, you know, destroyed the covers of the golf balls and put spin rates out of control. But ultimately, you know, Faldo probably controlled the ball as well as Hogan in terms of flight. And, you know, I, there'll be a lot of people out there going like shouting at, you know, their, their phones right now, going like, oh, no way, nobody, and look, you know, I am as much of a Hoganite as anybody. and. You know, nobody controlled the flight of a golf ball better in the playing game, you know, as Hogan and and Mo Norman, if anybody ever saw Mo Norman play, uh, and I was privileged enough to watch him do a couple of clinics, there was no deviation in the ball flight. In height, flight, left and right, he had that thing on a rope. And, you know, the, the tour players observed who were jaw dropped, you know, they were, you know, the, the, it was a sight to behold, um, you know, in, in Mo Norman, you know, I, I never saw Hogan hit a golf ball, but, you know, I did watch Faldo practice, I watched him, um, you know, very closely, and, you know, watched him hit a golf ball, and flight a golf ball, and, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say he was at the peak of his career, he was coming towards it at that point in time, um, Norman had great control, but Norman hit towering shots and This was a guy who struggled with i would say flighting you know a wedge um, you know, maybe his career was towards the end of his game you know to the end of his career before he had wedge shots under control i don 't think his methodology of hitting the golf ball sort of lent itself to control in the flight, um, whereas Faldo learnt to, to cover the golf ball with his chest and you have to do that. And modern teaching suggests that we do more of that. And so we're flighting the golf ball down. Manufacturers are producing shafts to do the same thing. So when you've got shafts and you know, uh, balance and weight at the club, you know, and the spin rates on the golf balls not being as excessive, um, and you're still getting up around about the nine and a half to ten and a half thousand thousand on a flighted wedge. You have control, mm-hmm. and, and that's you don't have to throw it up into you know, the atmosphere. There's a, a
1: misconception with other amateurs,
0: So I see that a lot. Mm-hmm. They, they want
1: to shoot it up their nostrils mm-hmm. and think it's going to stop on a sixpence.
0: I think one of the biggest challenges, of course, is that the recreational golfer doesn't believe the manufacturers have spent millions of dollars designing the club to do the job for them. You know, know, I see it all the time, especially little partial shots around the green, is somebody leaning back trying to lift the golf ball in the air when actually the club in the hand says six, you know, in the first digits of the loft. You know, it's got all of the characteristics to be able to get the golf ball in the air, and yet we see the 20 plus handicapped golfer, and you know, also see teen handicapped golfers as well, but... You know, 20 handicap plus golfers leaning back trying to get the golf ball in the air and the manufacturers have designed it to do that. You know, you may as well hit it like a putter. Because the loft on the club is going to get the ball in the air, but hit it, swing it a little bit firmer than you would a put. You know, you'd never lean back on a putter trying to get the ball in the air with a putter because you know the club's not designed to do it. Yet, the club that is designed to do it, folk are trying to lean back on it. And what I see from a technique point of view, is that the best players in the world with a wedge will have over 70% of their weight on their lead heel. So as a right-handed golfer, mm-hmm. 70% of their weight will start and stay on their lead heel. And when they hit the golf ball, their left foot is firmly planted and controlling and probably loaded with about 90, 95% of their weight. That's why they're the best players in the world, but that's why they're flighting the shot. And yet the recreational golfer's probably got 85% of it on his trail leg. They're bending down, the hips collapsing, the right hips collapsing on the right-handed golfer, and you know ultimately trying to get underneath the golf ball. And yet the best players, the chest is over the ball, the sternum's in front of the golf ball at the point of impact, the flight is down, the spin is up, you know, and there is one hop and stop control on the spin. And that's what you get from playing a shot from a partial distance. When you play a shot from full distance, then you will you could get the potential to spin the golf ball back. So although I feel I'm seeing, um, you know, and I'm sure there'll be players out there and coaches out there that will say, no, 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 that's not the case. But players are playing to more of a partial shot. Yeah. More of a three-quarter swing or an 80% swing that will control the flight and bring a 120-yard wedge down to 100 yards. You know, whereas the 54, 56, maybe their 100 yard club, you know, has got full flight and f- full spin capabilities and zipping the golf ball back. And, you know, they can take their 120 gap wedge and dial it back down and, and get it 96, 97 yard carry and one hop and then it's stopped, they've got their 100 yard shot.
1: I still see that with the amateurs quite a lot in recreational golfers with that, they're trying to hit the wedge, whichever wedge they've got in the bag full. They haven't got the, not
0: the that or maybe the understanding. I think it's understanding more than anything else.
1: Of how to flight it down, yeah.
0: and how to get that control more on your golf ball. You know, I mean, I, I coach a, a very simplistic approach, you know, when it comes to wedge play, um, that we set the weight on the lead heel, almost a little bit like a stack and tilt mm-hmm. um, concept, um stack and tilt I don't believe is for everybody in terms of full swing I would definitely struggle to get um full force into the golf ball as as, I still generate you know sort of low teens 112 to 115 mile an hour club head speed with my driver but I would definitely struggle to control the ball flight if I didn't load into my trail leg with my driver um and you know, I don't fully understand stack and tilt, apart from the fact that it is a little bit more loaded into the mm-hmm. front foot, but as far as I'm concerned, before stack and tilt became anything, my teaching concept around short game was load your weight into the front heel, open the stance slightly in order to be able to, to get that um, rotation through the golf ball, and depends on the distance of the shots to how much would rotate. Um, in the setup, but ultimately, weight in the front foot, keep it in the front foot, and even a full swing with a wedge isn't a full swing. A full wedge swing is a eighty-five, well, probably a ninety percent swing. Um, and I can play that shot then as a what I call a controlled full swing. You know, into any of my clubs up to about a six iron. You know, when it comes to five irons, four irons, and three irons, and the, and the hybrids and fairways and the like, I've got to get into my trial leg. It's a little bit like a stinger shot, but mm. played with a, with a lofty club or played as a controlled flight. You know, we know obviously Tiger hits this stinger, and Gary Woodland hits a stinger that's just like off the chart, something I like barely above your knee, but you know, ultimately, you know, it is a stinger with a wedge. and... You know, you play all the shots from that position. You control the angle of attack, shafting, bounce on the club. Everything is under control. You control the spin, control the loft, the point of impact, that launch spin. You know, everything is under control. And that's where then you get the one hot stop on the green. And, you know, it, like any shot, takes practice. You, you know, you have to practice, you have to master the skill and then practice the skill.
1: Where would you start on the range? So, uh, kind of recreational golfers listening to this on the on the radio in the car at the moment through their phone, mm-hmm. and they're on on the way to the range. What could they do straight away in terms of starting to learn and adapt and put this kind of flighted shot in play?
0: The first things first is to understand the sequence of a wedge shot is absolutely critical. It's more critical than a full swing. You know, we've talked about it in previous podcasts, but ultimately, the the full swing. If you've got uh, you know, set of ingredients. Um, your full swing would have a turn of the chest and hips, um, a, a hinge of the wrists, unless you buy some but there's still some wrist injury there, but not how we would normally see it. Um, a fold of the trail elbow and a lift of the arms through the shoulder. And, you know, what you can't do in a short shot is, is, bypass the sequence, the, there's no point in trying to chip with just your wrists, it's just not going to work so with the weight loaded into that front foot, um, and when I say weight loaded that means that your so if we're right handed, your left shoulder, elbow, left hand, um, you know all of that would be in line with the hip and the ankle and the shoulder. So that would give us a, pretty much a straight line um, and then the shaft would lean out from there. Um, the, the hand would probably come back a little on the inside um, of the thigh. It would still be in the, sh- the left side of the, sh- of the hip um, uh, position itself. So it would be left of your zip mm-hmm. um, on your trousers. So um, with a sh- little shaft lean going forward, feel like the left arm and club is totally in a straight line. And then just turn your chest to the right and then back to the left and collect the golf ball with, mm-hmm. with the movement. So a quarter swing would literally just take the golf club back to waist high. There'd be no wrist hinge, there'd be no you know, fold of the arms, there'd be literally nothing there. Just turn the chest, the club doesn't dive behind you, the club is parallel to the target line. You know, so if you were to put a, a stick down you know, between the ball and your feet, you'd see the shaft as you turn your chest. Away your shaft will be parallel to the stick and target, and then you would just turn back through, and you're you're relying on the tilt of your chest just to you know lift the arms and the club you know back up a little bit and through, you'd have your club would be no more than waist high. But you know, folk are resistant in that. To do it by putting by placing your weight on the left side. You would then need to open your stance slightly but when you do place it on the left side your right hip is free to turn and when you right hip is free to turn you know then you can turn your chest and it's like oh that seems like a lot of movement for for a quarter swing which will typically hit you somewhere between 20 and 30 yards you know depending on the speed you turn back at but that's fairly normal distance you're going to hit the shot but try that because if you get a feel for that and you know the ball strike will probably be a little bit peculiar to start with because you're not used to doing it and i know you're not used to doing it because i see what the problems are you know when i typically see a golfer who's struggling with the short game you know most, most golfers come to me because they've reached the end of their tether and they haven't found an expert yet and they come to see me and we fix them within you know a few hours and you know we've we've fixed them this got of practice so the fix is recognizing what it is they're doing wrong and then appointing a series of movements that gets it right now you have going to practice that you know so when we identify the problems invariably there is no body rotation it's taking the club back with the wrist rotation flailing the arm rotating the forearms doing all sorts of peculiar things mm. and then you can't time it you can't rectify it the club can't find the base of the swing where the golf ball is you know and you know, whereas if you just turn your chest back and forward you will find the base of the swing and then try putting the ball there you know, and see how regular you can strike the same spot on the ground that' would be my first sort of recommendation and then the golf ball you know when you put put it there the golf ball is at the very start of that entry point to the ground and trust it it's easy for me to say you know um, but you have to trust it and you haven't got to try and find the golf ball. The golf ball's there, you know, and, you know, once you've worked the quarter swing, then you can add some wrist hinge. And this is the correct sequence for swinging a golf club. Wrist hinge takes the club upwards. And, you know, if you hadn't noticed, at some point the club's going to go up. So, you know, by turning your chest and hinging your wrist, that'll give you a half swing, which when you just unwind you know, release the wrists and unwind your chest, you've now got enough swing to hit the golf ball 50 yards with, you know, your 100-yard club. It does a half swing and it gives you half the distance. Um, Again, sounds very simplistic, but as long as you've got your weight set on that lead side, you turn and hinge, and you let the hinge go and then turn back again, you've got enough momentum to hit the golf ball, for 45, 50 yards. And, you know... Again, continue to train that. you know. And then three-quarter swing, you're going to add some lift of the arms. So now you've got the wrist hinge, but now you've also started to fold the trail arm. Hands to shoulder, and that gives you a three-quarter swing. And then hands above the shoulder gives you your full wedge swing, which is a controlled flighted swing that you may well use with anything up to seven, eight arm, depending on how strong you are. And I know there'll be a lot of, Guys, listening, thinking, oh, I can do this with a five iron because they think they're strong. But there's a difference in golf strength and physical strength. Mm. So, you know, golf strength, even I can't do it with a five iron anymore. You know, yeah, I can still swing the club 150 115 mile an hour with the driver. So, there's a this golf strength that we're talking about is is a, a lot different. You know, and, and not necessarily for today's conversation. <laughs>
1: it's another one. It's another podcast. we'll yeah, have another
0: podcast.
1: <laughs> It'd be a miss for us not to talk about. Mr Woods mm. and some of the changes and for Tiger I, it, it was a big change this week he's not a guy who changes his golf bag or his makeup of his golf bag that often what were your thoughts as a putting a short game specialist
0: well, I'm glad you listed some of some of the advice that I've been putting out on the podcast I mean that's kind of you know, listening um, he's <laughs> listening <laughs> um, definitely not joking aside you know I'm, I'm not saying that Tigers listened directly to me, but you know, I've been saying this for 15 years that putters are too short. So, even the data that is out there, I am questioning just how long this club is. Tigers alluded to the fact that he's swinging a club, a putter that he is the same length or similar length to his sand iron. Now, if my recollections of information that I was not privy to seeing, um, but it was accidentally left for, for some observations. Um, it was on the Nike truck, and I wasn't—I wasn't, I, I wasn't there—but somebody took a photograph of it. And, uh, the tiger uses some uses clubs. If my recollection is correct, slightly longer than standard. Um, which would suggest that his sand iron is around about 35 and three quarters, 36 inches long. Um, documented records suggest that this particular putter is a little bit longer than what he was using, but it, at the early part of the week his putter was 35 and a quarter, and this new putter is a little bit longer. I'm going to suggest that it's closer to 36 than it is to the 35. Um, Kind to of hedge in my bets So if it's 35 and a half I've got it nailed anyway but ultimately um, you know Tiger's got long levers, he's got long arms so we've got to be mindful that the length of club but that I would ordinarily advocate for somebody of Tiger's height would be a little bit longer than what Tiger would appear to be using. I would also go as far as to say as I think that there is some protection as to how much longer this putter is compared to you know what it actually is. You know we're, we're kind of the data that's going out there suggests that it's a little bit shorter um, than than it actually is. I would say that it's closer to thirty six than thirty five. So, um, and partly because if you try to get a putter from Scotty Cameron, you can't at uh, thirty six inches, not without going through some you know studio um, you know triple the price um, edition, but. Um, You know, putter manufacturers that are making standard, bog standard putters off the shelf at 34 inches are not going to want to hear this story get out. You know, that this story about the putter being, that the big deal's about the weight, the big deal's about the weight. I'm sorry, but, you know, it almost seems like we've been been conned that the big deal about this club is the weight. No, no, it's not. The, The weight is interchangeable. But actually, the big deal about the story is Tiger can practice for longer, pain-free. We know that he's got issues with his back. I watched a documentary um, during the last week of the surgery that um, the fusion surgery that Tiger had by the doctor that did it, by the surgeon that actually did it, and you know he explained all of the detail of this um, surgery and it's incredibly impressive for a start, the fact that obviously Tiger's made the recovery that he has, but knowing what I know about spine injuries, you know, having been privy to a few myself and a few of my students, uh, you know, have been through different types of surgeries, you know, we're very mindful and aware that you can't bend anatomically stressing the spine, for 40 years and think you're gonna get away with it for another 40. Mm. Whereas you don't actually have to bend the, the body into position. We're gonna talk about it in Potting Myths in the videos in a little while, but ultimately, um, you know, you, you, you just can't do it. And, and it does more than, you know, stop you from practicing. It, it stops you from performing. You know, and Tiger's already had a very upright posture for, for many, many years. But he's realised, you know, he, he, he was very coy, you know, very tongue-in-cheek and smiling, you know, as he does. You know, hey, listen, I'm getting old, you know. And, and this, he's talking to Fred Couples and, and other golfers. And John trying to say, I'm using a 37, you know. And you know, look, he's a little bit taller, but he, he's using a 37 he's not very old, you know. So it's half a tiger's age, you know. So, you know, what's the big deal about getting old? You know, getting into the optimum posture so that your body's free to move, that you then do not suffer the pain of practicing hamstring stretching, lower back stretching, you know, aching when you've had done a couple of hours of practice because you know you need to because you're missing putts and you need to work on your technique. Well the problem with the technique is down to the fact that you bent over it and you're having to compensate and you're going to learn how to compensate by standing up, you free it up. Now I'd have been the happiest man in the world if Tiger had walked away the champion this weekend. And, you know, I'm sure it would have helped business a little. But, you know, Tiger's made massive inroads into that. He's made a change going into a major championship. And the guy has played a handful of rounds of golf, competitive rounds of golf this year. I'm sure he would have loved to have had that putter in the bag in competition for, you know, 10, 12 rounds before going into a major. If not, you know, 10, 12 months. He's been dabbling with this putter for 12 months or so now. You know, a little bit longer, he's had it at the, um, he he took it to Ireland last year for Portrush at the open. So he's recognising that there are these frailties that potentially need adapting. And, you know, he's prepared to do it. That's the thing I love about Tiger. He is that he's prepared to do it? He didn't need to do it before, you know. If you've got the stats and the data, you know that says actually, you know what? I am putting really, really well, and I'm not missing many putts inside ten feet, and my distance putting is not compromised. And you know, almost blindsided, he could have potentially been a better putter had he been a longer, had he had a longer putter for a longer period in his career. You know, it's easy in hindsight to say potentially, you know, he he may well have missed some putts that he's holding in the past because of that as well but that generally doesn't happen you know once you dial it in you really get dialed in and you know i think tiger Interesting this morning you know i've read something about tiger the putter won't stay in the bag i think it will i think it will i yeah. think it will i would be very surprised if you see tiger you know sort of i think the length of the club you know the weight weight is always going to change so you know i would imagine that the head weight is very similar to what it was in its base numbers and that he can increase the weight if greens get slower. The, if the head is the same weight and the putter is half an inch longer, it feels heavier to Tiger. Because it, it will do. Because the counterweight, in effect, has produced a heavier... You you know, put a longer shaft into it, the club is going to feel heavier. So, you, you know, he, he would have had a club... It may well be custom-built at 315 grams because I think it was 326 sort of numbers touted, 325, 326, something some in that category, which is light by today's standard. And you can increase the head weight, you know, up and down without visually changing the look of the putty. You didn't want to put leg tape on the bottom of the club mm. or in the back of the club, so it visually affected how it looked. You wanted to be looking at a very similar looking club. So, you know, that's the, the advantage of being Tiger Woods, when you, you go and commission the product you know, to be built on, you know, to your specification, and that's, you know, by all accounts, that's available to anybody if you've got the money, yeah. um, you know, with the Scotty brand, so, you know, I've, I've got nothing against the product if it produces the role on the ball that, you know, Tiger effectively likes, and, you know, the first round was great, I mean, I loved watching the ball going in from all sorts of distance, which is not generally where where you're going to knock them in from when you've not played competitively for such a long time, but you know, I think it's a it's a really major step forward for Tiger. I hope he can trust it. You know that he can learn to trust the putter, and ultimately, you know he, he's able to then practice harder. If he's able to practice harder. It means that he becomes more competitive every time he goes into another event. Mm-hmm. You know, with the U.S. Open around the corner and Masters hopefully in November. You know, all things being equal, you know Tiger's going to be extremely competitive for that.
1: What's gonna make the change in the mainstream for for, for us with the manufacturers? Will would we'll you think they'll move to this more of a trend of kind of ungrip golf clubs use it, more fitted approach or is it just a lot of them are just gonna go, No, we're gonna to stick to the thirty-five? What's going is it gonna be take a tiger win at nearly thirty-six inch putter? To, to change? Is it going to be John Rahn with a 37 inch putter? Or? Well,
0: look, John Rahn's been using a 37 inch putter for a number of years, so, you know, or certainly, you know, two seasons now. So, you know, I don't think the manufacturers are necessarily going to rush to it. I think the main reason for that is because they don't want putters fitting properly. You know, <laughs> he said it. Nothing like Andy to be controversial. But, you know, yeah, I mean, ultimately, if your putter manufacturers learn, but ultimately, we'll get more rounds of golfing if people enjoy putting. And people are frustrated about putting. Golfers are frustrated. Mm. You know, guys listening now, you're frustrated about your putter fitting. If you've not had a putter fit, I mean, I get it all the time. Andy, I've been for a putter fitting. I've been recommended 34 inches. Oh, another big box store then. I'll call them out, American Golf. You know, I mean, you look, the like guys that you work with. You know, but ultimately, American Golf, they're buying 34 inch putters, that's not necessarily their fault. So I'm not having a go at American golf, but they're buying what they've got to- Start a chain into- Yeah, chain they, they're coin. buying what's available. Yeah. So if they started ordering 35 inch putters, and then asking the manufacturers for 36 inch putters, and the manufacturers, if they valued that customer, and they're a big customer here in the UK, we know that. So if they started to ask the question, we want 36 and 35 inch putters and not 34, then the customer determines what the manufacturers end up making. Now it's about, now it's about not marketing necessarily to the feel of that, it's change, you're changing the marketplace that are able to buy, what you're able to buy. If a customer comes in and asks for 34 inch putters because that's what they think they're going to have to need. And if you I mean, I've been, this last week, I've done 11 fittings this last week. The average length of fit, well, I'm on the cuff now, but the average length of fit I'm going to say is going to be 36 and a half. I had a fellow in last week, you know, he's six foot five. And he's got a 34 inch putter. Mm. You know, he goes out He goes out from here with a 37 and a half inch putter. He resisted going to 38, right? But he's gone in and he's had 31. 29, 32, 30, and yet he was averaging 38 to 40 putts around beforehand. He said, The great thing is, I'm able to stand over a putt and practice, even if it is for just 10 minutes before I go out, or you know, some 10 or 15 minutes at home, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of times a week, you, you know. And he said to me, Look, oh, with all due respect, Andy, you told me I'd only need to practice an hour a week. I've only done half an hour and I've lowered my putting stats by about six to eight putts around. So you better believe I'm happy. Mm. And by the way, I've had my handicap cut for the first time in five years. I haven't gone the wrong direction for five years. You know, I've had my handicap cut I two shots in a week. So I don't know at what point folk don't get this. Look, if we are all about continuing to grow the game Frustration, removing frustration as much as possible has to be a remit that every golf professional and every retailer across the globe has to take on board. And it means that we have to tell the manufacturers what we need for the customer, not what we are going to buy based on what they're going to sell us. Because the tube is a tube, I'm talking about the shaft now. Mm. The shaft is 41 inches when it's cut. Now, the manufacturers then tell whoever it is that's cutting the shaft to cut it to a certain length but when that tube goes in fitted into the club it's fitted either from a 41 inch blank or it's fitted for whatever length it's going to be to go in with a hosel and you know the neck configuration whatever length it's going to be for the finish length to be 34 inches so it can be 35 36 38 or uncut now my concern with an uncut version is unless you're a specialist uncut putting the grip on yourself yeah, exactly. going through all of those things you've got to be a specialist to be able to get that bit absolutely spot on and i um, would be i will go as far as to say that there are a handful of us in the uk probably no more than a hundred across the globe that are specialist enough to be able to custom build these putters specifically custom build them for the customer in front of the customer um Hundred might be tight. It might be as many as five hundred. I don't know, but it's a very small number comparative to, you know, the probably a hundred thousand golf pros who are doing any kind of custom yeah. fitting, you know, around the globe. So yeah, from a you know, from a consumer point of view, number one, if you're six foot tall, thirty four, it's too short. It's simple as that. And you know, closer to thirty six would be an optimum length. And putters used to be 36 inches long. They used to be 37 inches long, you know, back in the day. So 285 gram head weight, 37 inches long, D2 swing weight. Swing weight's not important, you know, it's feel weight. Swing weight is something that we have when we're swinging it at you know, 70, 80 mile an hour, you know, 100 mile an hour plus, you know. But putters, it's about the feel weight. It doesn't matter if your putter isn't D2 swing weight anymore, because you can't get it on the scale of the head weights that we're selling today but they feel good, Mm. they do feel good. But if we get the weights right, the head, the length right, you know, we get the club balanced overall, the the putter is easier to swing from the right posture. I keep saying it, I've been saying it for 15 years, I'm not gonna get quiet about it, you know, I'll be saying it when there's a box lid being nailed down on the top of me, I'll have a recording in there, (laughs) Um, you know, the, the putter, when it's the right length, allows the body to posture, the brain to function, and then from there, if the brain can function properly, then the body can too. And if the body's swinging the putter freely, instinctively, we will hold more putts. It's as simple as that. So, you know, or will have fewer putts on the greens. Because, you know, if you a putter in your hand, you, at some point you're going to hold one, but you'll hold them from longer distance as well. So, yeah, Tiger's done the right thing from, you know, my account. I'd love to sit and do it earlier, but that's fine, you know. And you know, if he'd have done it two years ago, he'd have gone into the uh, gone into the masters, you know, in 2019 with a new putter in the bag that was longer. And you know, my job wouldn't necessarily have been done, but would have been easier for the last 18 <laughs> months. But you know, um, yeah, you know, he's done the right thing, mm,
1: brilliant, superb. Another great podcast, Andy.
0: Well, uh, yeah, just he's... It, it's easy to talk about it's something I'm passionate about and it's something that you know from a point of view of um you know to the listening audience you know be prepared to make changes because you know Einstein's theories you know um all come down to it at the end of the day keep doing the same thing and expect a different result when you are on the edge of insanity so for me the biggie is be prepared to make some changes Stand up taller. Recognise that the club is needing to be longer, and we will have a much more in, inspirational, instinctive, creative stroke. And you know, when you get the flight, the ball down, don't be afraid to try and keep the ball under the tree line. You know, when you're at, on the golf course with your wedge shots, you know, flight the golf ball down. And of course, if you want to know more, you know where you are, where where you can find me. You know. Where I am. Brilliant. Next week, we'll be talking about the, uh, I think we're moving into... Playoffs. Playoffs, and... Um,
1: and Celtic Man on the key swing.
0: So, um, yeah, of course, that. You know, I do I do like Celtic Manor. I think it's, uh, and of course, it, we're going to Wales, so it's gonna rain. Mm. So, um, yeah. <laughs> on the golf tournament in Wales, it's going to rain, so the forecast is pretty dodgy for the rest of the week. Um, and we may have to pre-record because the clubs are coming out for an old man's tournament next week as well. So I am out there uh, playing golf next week and uh, we we will pre-record, so of course I won't be able to uh, tell you how I've got on until the following week, but we are going to put to the test all the things that we've been talking about for the last eight weeks and um, Hopefully, the next time I speak to you with regards to that, I'll be um, able to tell you that it was a decent tournament as well. But, uh, you yeah, know, I'm out there for a bit of fun. Good stuff. Catch up with you soon. Thanks for listening. Speak to you next week.